You have reached the voicemail box of Speed Dial with Ira Madison III and Doreen St. Felix. This week, we're talking about the Renaissance in Black television, Kate Upton, and Usher's legacy in R&B. Leave a message. Doreen, if you are not watching Queen Sugar on Oprah's TV network, you need to do it. Tara from True Blood finally has a show that she can act on. Call me back. Ira, I literally upgraded my cable package so I could have Oprah's channel own so I could watch Queen Sugar. This show is actually, it's incredible. I don't even have own, but I did purchase the season for $19.99 on iTunes. So that's how serious (laughs) I am about Oprah. And Ava DuVernay, (laughs) who created the TV series. At first, I was like... Ava, shouldn't you be doing another movie? Because, like, someone didn't win that Oscar and, you know, Quentin Tarantino came for you and was like, it was sort of like a TV movie. And I was like, so why are you actually doing a TV show now? But now I'm watching it and I'm like, this shit is hype. I'm glad she made a TV show. And also, she's not just making this TV show, right? Like, Ava became the first woman of color to direct a movie that's you know, that has a hundred million dollars on it. Um, that's going to be the wrinkle in time movie. Like she's also making her movies at the same time. I don't know. She also put out this documentary a couple of weeks ago. Like, I don't know how she has time to make all of the high quality projects that she does, but somehow she's that prolific. I mean, she's just, she's going to be the filmmaker of our generation. Right. She's also like, manages to have time to like tweet all the time too and like i do that (laughs) and i'm certainly not making a movie a documentary and a tv series uh she's like she's the beyonce of the filmmaking world just always working but then always manages to be on the ground like you can just tell that she's at the forefront of culture she knows every cultural conversation that's happening online that's happening offline she's just so clued in and I think the fact that she's the kind of filmmaker who actually wants to listen to her audience creates projects like Queen Sugar that are almost uncanny in the way they show black stories how we would like to see them you know and Queen Sugar is a series about a black family who loses their father. And so they all sort of converge back home in Atlanta to take care of his farm and keep it away from people who, you know, are vultures and want to like take the farm away from the family. So you have like, you know, the working class black son um, who's just out of prison. Um, You have um, the daughter who's married to a basketball player, um, and then you have the daughter who stayed home and is sort of like the good daughter, but she's having an affair with a married man, too. So it's a really fun, like, messy um, black drama. And so Queen Sugar is actually adapted from a book, Uh, and the the author's name is Natalie Basile. And what I really love about Ava DuVernay is that she 
is because she's in contact with other black creators, she knew about this book and was able to say, all right, this is something that would actually make sense in a television show. And so I love that this show, which is so clearly going to be about family and how families converge while um, after having been separated, the show itself has its own lineage. You know, it came from this book and now Ava with the consent and the involvement of the author has turned it into this TV show. Um, so yeah, Queen Sugar. It might sound like a Tyler Perry show, but it's not that. What I was really struck by was just like how realistic it is. Yeah. It felt almost like, you know, when I would watch Parenthood and I would be like, oh, this is like what white people do. I was watching Queen <laughs> Sugar and I was like, wait, this is what black people do. And it's interesting seeing like black characters interacting on TV and not in like a this was written for a white audience way or this was written by white people um, who have no idea how black people are interacting with one another. It's just like the little the little conversations, the little references. Yeah. I've been really loving the attention to detail in this show. Absolutely. And I've also been so obsessed with how the characters look. Mm -hmm. Ava is well known for working with cinematographers who actually know how to light black skin. Yes. Um, so for that basically means knowing that just because somebody's darker doesn't mean like you have to put a ton of light on them. Actually, it's about the interplay of shadow. So mm -hmm. if you have a dark skinned actor, it might be better to like take some light away actually and let the shadow show their beauty and it's just you know this is a television show I'm watching on my TV and it's stunning it looks so much more beautiful than the way that I see black actors get lit on like pretty much any other television show that's on right now including some of the black TV shows like Empire or whatever like, nobody's mean, ever washed out there's not like intense light spots it's just visually gorgeous to be fair i think the lighting on empire is just a lava lamp that lee daniel sticks in the corner <laughs> but um <laughs> like Latino we have to fact check that <laughs> <laughs> i cannot verify which is why i said i think doreen don't come at me with your facts <laughs> um, i'm sorry <laughs> But I'm saying that, like, Rutina Wesley looks gorgeous on this show. And she was on True Blood, where, you know, she looked gorgeous there, too. But the lighting on True Blood was horrible. The writing on mm -hmm. True Blood was horrible. The costumes on True, <laughs> True Blood was just horrible. But I watched every season of it because I'm trash just like True Blood. Uh, and she, like, really never had anything to do on that show except cry because her family was awful and then, you know, her family members would die and then she died and then she came back as a vampire. And it was just, like, messy. And it's good to see her mm -hmm. on a real TV show acting. Like, I didn't yes. even know she could act. But she just hasn't been given the roles. And there's so many female actresses like that in black Hollywood. Um, another person who comes to mind for me is Regina Hall. You know, like 
an incredible comedic actress, but she hasn't been given, you know, the stuff with which to make a good performance. Another person who's not getting roles like she should, Gabrielle Union. Like, you know, in that interview Chris Rock did where he was like, Gabrielle Union is as funny as like a Jennifer Aniston, but she's not America's sweetheart because she just hasn't been given the opportunity to show off her skills. And it's like when OWN first started, I obviously was kind of you know, curious as to how Oprah thought she was going to make this television empire out of something that wasn't just her talk show. And obviously, Own has a long way to go, but this is the right direction, you know? Right. You know, because at first it was just like a bunch of Tyler Perry sitcoms that nobody was really interested in watching. And then like the haves and have nots, which is like, I guess somebody is watching that show, but it really was not for me. Greenleaf, I heard, is actually good, and Oprah's in it, and I love yeah. watching Oprah act, air quote, act, uh, because she is wild <laughs> on camera. I've watched this clip of Greenleaf, and I was like, sis, you are giving me, like, Dynasty season five right now, and I was actually <laughs> feeling it, so I think I need to go watch Greenleaf, too, um, this show about, like, a mega church. But this is far and away like the best thing that has been produced on OWN so far, besides, you know, like Super Soul Sunday and that Lindsay Lohan reality show. Yeah. (laughs) And having Queen Sugar premiere around the same time as Atlanta has just felt like, I don't know, last year I was starting to get a little bit tired of Empire. I think a lot of people were. It was this thing where you were like, yeah, we're having more black television shows, but they are falling into certain tropes and they're not necessarily getting better with every season. But I have like a renewed hope in especially Atlanta because Donald Glover's hands are all over that project. He is producing it. He is writing it. He got his friend to come and direct it. He told FX, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this my own way. And I mean, that pilot, I wanted it to continue. I thought that, you know, like the 30 minute slot isn't even, it should be longer. That's how much I liked it. Yeah. Empire is, like I said, it's messy. It feels very unrealistic just in terms of like how these black people are living, you know, in the everyday world, which is fine Mm -hmm. because it's a soap opera. um, But it also doesn't even do soap opera that well. Like, it's not giving me Ugly Betty. It's not giving me Desperate Housewives. So I'm like, I really don't even know why you're here or why I'm watching it. Or even Jane the Virgin, which is happening contemporaneously, you know? Yes. Jane the Virgin is an excellent, excellent soap opera where its characters feel like real people. Um, Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Empire just... I don't know. Anyway, um, Donald Glover is so good in this show. And his just talent is like, a lot of people have been comparing it to like Louis and Master of None because um, they have no reference for black TV shows. Um, But it's actually (laughs) not like any of those shows (laughs) because like this one's about like working class black people so it's actually more like everybody hates chris or rock or um you know good times sanford and son you know it's like following like a long tv tradition of showing like working class black people which is not just 
a large amount of black people in America. Like it's a large amount of white people in America. You know, yeah. it's why we've had so many working class white sitcoms over the years. But somehow around like the Cosby era, um, it sort of yeah. became like taboo to have like black people who don't have money on TV. That is such an amazing point, Ira. I remember actually being, you know, a kid and I actually gravitated to shows like Roseanne and Married with Children. And my parents were kind of like, I don't understand why you want to watch this because they saw shows like The Cosby Show and even like Fresh Prince and Living Color. A lot of these shows which were like upwardly mobile, um, very well-educated black people, you know, they saw that as like, the materials I should be interested in, but there was something about the kind of comedy that you can do when you were in what is obviously, you know, a lower class, um, just more like average American space. It's blue collar. That comedy. You know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, yeah, I, I never even thought to compare Atlanta or what Atlanta's trying to do to a show like Good Times, but it's like, it's totally there. The way the Cosby show kind of truncated and forced depictions of black families in particular into like, you know, all the families had to be nuclear, they had to be living in cities, they had to be making money. It then creates a space where we're not actually seeing the images of who we are. Yeah. And it's crazy that Donald Glover, of all people who went to NYU, would give it to us. But here we are. And, you know, what I actually did like about like even shows like Fresh Prince and like Living Single is the fact that those shows still acted like there were varying degrees of black people. You know, like Will mm-hmm. came from like the sort of life that was in Good Times or you would see in Atlanta. And he was in now his rich family's house. Um, but they also still often dealt with like racial and political issues, you know, like living single was about these four black women who lived in a city who had like good jobs. And so that sort of relates to, you know, like how we might be now, you know, like in our twenties and thirties, mm-hmm. but those shows never act like they were removed from like working class black people. Because, you know, even in America, if you're black and you're wealthy, you weren't born into wealth, which means that someone in your family is still living below that wealth line or you were born into it and you worked your way out of it. You know, according to like the census, like over 50 percent of black people were living in poverty. And that had to do with, you know, Jim Crow, with housing discrimination with school segregation when you get a show like arrested development or something with rich white people you can look back and say that like oh they've inherited that money from like you know 10 generations of rich white people you know and that's just not the case and it certainly wasn't the case with the cosby's um because you know like even the good doctors like bitch your money came from somewhere like you weren't born into this money especially like if you're doing this in the early 80s like you certainly did not grow up in a rich black family you know like in the 60s you know yeah but even if there was a sense of you know to your point about how some of the 90s shows as opposed to you know cosby 
from the late 80s to the early 90s, the shows that came after him, even if they did have class interplay, there was the shows were situated in physical spaces that, you know, very clearly showed black mobility, you know, Mm -hmm. like the the parts of these people of these characters lives that would show the struggle like I feel like they were more um, peripheral to the storylines if that makes sense Mm -hmm. no definitely you know which isn't to say that we shouldn't have those types of shows on television but you know if we do we need to acknowledge where those characters come from and like the society that they live in now I think that Blackish is a perfect example of a show like that which constantly references the character's upbringing, Tracy Ellis's Ross's and um, Anthony Anderson's upbringing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But it also shows them dealing with current political issues of being black people in America while, you know, trying to raise a family in the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, that show is all about class anxiety. Um, And you can manage to do that while also having a positive role model of a black nuclear family on TV without, you know, it needing to be like a morality tale about respectability. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as we can tell, you know, with Atlanta, there isn't going to be a predominant black nuclear family um, driving the story, which actually makes me excited. We're going to have to check back in every couple of weeks about how the season is going. But Donald Glover, we see you. We're into you. So, Doreen, um, you got put on blast this week by Refinery29. Really? (laughs) Yes. um, To to recap for people, on September 11th, Kate Upton had a lot to say about the Dolphins taking a knee during the national anthem. Because Uh as an American, she chooses to stand. And she remembers all those people who lost their lives 15 years ago. Also, the countless who've given their lives defending our freedom here at home. Hashtag never forget. Hashtag Patriot Day. I'm actually not sure what patriots, whether, you know, the American Revolution patriots um, the Patriots <laughs> football team. Which Patriots? The Kate? Mel Gibson movie Patriot. I'm not sure what any of that has to do <laughs> with what she's talking about. Um, but she was super pressed. And of course she got dragged for it. I told her when she was like, this is unacceptable. You should be proud to be an American, especially on 9-11 when we support each other. I was like, actually, girl, your acting in The Other Woman was unacceptable. Um, (laughs) that's what I had to tell her. And you chimed in with a tweet. What did I say? You said, sentient rectangle Kate Upton can shut all the way up. (laughs) 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 So. I may or may not have tweeted that. My account may or may not have been hacked. (laughs) This girl named Shannon Carlin wrote a piece for Refinery29 said, everyone is hating on Cape Upton for these tweets and it's not okay. 
in this piece, oh my God. she goes on to say that people attacked Kate Upton. She goes on to say that some of the attacks were, you know, sexist and misogynistic, which, of course, you know, because when the internet disagrees with a woman, that's usually what happens for, like, some people. But she ignores the fact that people actually had valid criticisms of Kate Upton, and never once does she even analyze Kate Upton's comments herself so it's actually like a Uh bad piece of cultural criticism it's just a leave kate upton alone post jesus christ and did she call out our tweets in it she called out yours she didn't come for mine (laughs) um because mine is not sexist or misogynistic and it doesn't fit her um thesis so she left mine alone Uh, But yours isn't either. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) This is, oh my God. Ira, you totally got me on this one. I had no idea this piece had come up. Listen, (laughs) here's my problem with knee jerk. I'm going to call this knee jerk feminism. All right. This is a sub genre of feminism. You feel a type of way because this white woman who you think is attacked all the time, the white woman who is an extremely successful model, even though she's really bad at it, a white woman who gets acting roles, even though she's a terrible actress, a white woman who is like inexplicably always advertising this game on Twitter and nobody actually plays it. You feel that this white woman is being attacked in this scenario. And the fact that You also know you have, like, no knowledge about the actual situation. You don't actually know what Copernic is doing. You couldn't speak eloquently on it. You choose to skew the situation into a light that allows you to have an opinion because you're actually just an uninformed white woman just like her. You know what I mean? It's that thing where it's like, I can't actually talk about racial injustice. I can't actually talk about police brutality. But I can talk about sexism. So let me foist it on a situation that doesn't warrant it. Exactly. You know, and there was an easy way to write this post. You can criticize Kate Upton without being sexist would have been a perfect title. Um, And then you could have critiqued Kate Upton. And then you could have mentioned these particular tweets here are unacceptable because they're actually sexist and like body shaming. But you didn't do that. You know, you had to come out here and cape for this white woman. Um, I bet this girl was actually like really feeling some type of way after Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer last week. And, you know, her like white feminist heroes are, you know, getting bodied left and right. And so she has to preserve them. She has to preserve the white woman. I just don't buy this idea that like, oh, even if a white woman is morally reprehensible and has terrible opinions about the actual humanity of black people, sexism is a little bit too far. Like you can't make fun of her body, even though she is literally saying that black people shouldn't matter and that the deaths of black people shouldn't matter. This hierarchy that online critics have created is such bullshit. You can't just resort to sexism and feminism as 
uh, reflexive defense because you don't know how to actually engage the conversation at hand. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, she can say that like black people don't deserve to protest, but you can't like make a quip about her body. A white woman who is also blonde and literally a famous supermodel. Who is also dating a famous baseball player. It's like, if you, like, choose choose actually oppressed people to defend. You know what I mean? Like, nobody, Kate Upton is fine. She will always be fine. The people that Kaepernick is pr- protesting for, and also himself, and also the football players who are losing endorsements because they're fighting for their lives on the field, those people are not fine. If you're going to be an advocate, your advocacy should be towards people who actually need it. And while we're, like, addressing, like, the particular day, it's like, I don't really get what September 11th has to do with not protesting. Because September 11th has nothing to do with what is being protested during the National Anthem. And actually, the National Anthem isn't even about September 11th. I mean, the way that people have... As a New Yorker, I feel especially sensitive about the co-optation of of September 11th. It's like, I was there, you know what I mean? Like, my uncle had to rush out of World Trade Center. My neighbor was in the second tower. So I have a very visceral connection to this event. And let me tell you, when it happened, nobody was thinking about America. Nobody was thinking about the American flag. We were thinking about those two buildings and the thousands of people who died. Right. It was a vi- it was a local disaster. And right. I understand that people who consider themselves to be patriotic think that they have a connection to it, but at the end of the day if you're not a New Yorker, you're not you're never going to really get it. You're never going to understand what it's like to have your entire geography raised in that way. So, I just think it's disgusting how American jingoism has completely just It's just taken the importance out of the event, right? And it's just like erased the actual lived people, the people who actually died. And it's made them, you know, pawns in this narrative that justifies a stupid statement from Kate Upton. How many times do like politicians come out talking about September 11th, you know, talking about how we, you know, need to never forget. And it's like... This happened in New York. Meanwhile, every other day of the year, you trash New Yorkers, you trash their values, uh, you call them too liberal and say, you know, these aren't, you know, the real, this isn't real America. Like, you can't say that, like, the East Coast is real America and then turn around and use a tragedy that happened on the East Coast to signify, you know, how we all need to band together as America. Yeah, it's so opportunistic and it's just revisionist. This is not how the actual history happened. And I just, I hate the anniversary every year because it's that same cycle of people pretending that they care about New York in particular and about the people who died. And it's like, you don't. This is just like the perfect story for you. And that's what Kate Upton did. It was the perfect story for her. Right. It's always Giuliani trotting his mom and ass out of wherever he's been hiding so he can like fight the fantastic four and talk about 
how September 11th, you know, he jumped to action and saved New York. It's like, bitch, you didn't do anything. You literally killed more people than you had to because of how terrible you were in terms of building response efforts. That's what Giuliani Giuliani did (laughs) in the wake of September 11th. And then he even forgot earlier this year that September 11th is his talking point. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) When he tried to cover Hillary Clinton. I don't know what's going on in that man's head. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think the message here is that September 11th was a horrible tragedy um, that affected a lot of Americans. And there's no reason why people who weren't in New York, you know, can't revere the day. You know, we revere Pearl Harbor and other incidents that have happened on American soil. But it's super shady to co-opt September 11th and make it, you know, this sort of American values day when you spend the rest of the year denigrating other Americans' values um, and trying to take their rights away. Or in the case of Upton, not even speaking on other Americans. You can't just be silent for most of the year and then speak out because you feel like your feelings are hurt. You know, like I... There's both denigrating other Americans and then there's also just omission. And I'm not asking you to be a public speaker. I'm not asking you to be an activist or an advocate. But you have to understand that if you are not actively in that space and you're not having those conversations, it is not your right to then jump in on high and scold one of the bravest athletes that we've seen this year. Like, it's just not your right. And nobody's going to take you seriously I mean, I don't know anybody who, like, has a Google alert for what Kate Upton has to say about, like, whatever national conversation is happening anyway. But, like, you don't matter at the end of the day. This conversation, you don't matter in it. Right. And also this week, Colin Kaepernick debuted his new cornrows. Um, and he is looking <laughs> he is looking finer than ever. So we really, really do not have time for Kate Upton this week. We have time for admiring this beautiful man. <laughs> Let those edges flourish, Colin. So last night I was in bed scrolling through social media and I noticed that a man I know by the name of Ira Madison III was at an Usher listening party. <laughs> in, was it in LA? Like, where were you, boo? Well, I didn't like fly to New York and not tell you about it. So uh, <laughs> it was in LA. Well, I assume just as much. Uh, it was in downtown LA at the Ace Theater Hotel. It was thrown by title and Sprint, um, and it was a listening sort of session. Usher was interviewed, and he talked about each track after each song played. Towards the end, like he stopped talking about the tracks and they just kept playing the songs. But um, for all, <laughs> he got tired, <laughs> right? Uh, for, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, he was chatting about the album and you know how important it was to him. 
the album is good. Yeah. And Usher will always be a legend. Usher has never put out a bad album. Never. He has put out bad cover art. Yeah, the cover art for Hearts of Love. You see that weird ass Roman bust on the cover of this album? It's awful. And he actually explained (laughs) that like this artist worked on the bust and he was like the mold was put onto him and he only had air holes so he could breathe. So for three hours he couldn't see or hear anything to make this bust. And I'm like, but it's ugly. So was the three hours <laughs> worth it? It doesn't even look like him. It doesn't. <laughs> oh my god! I saw this and I was like, "Who? Like, did Usher's son make this? Like, what is going on?" <laughs> I get the idea. I'm really into Usher as David, <laughs> if you will, but. <laughs> It just doesn't look like him. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he talked about, like, how he was really into, you know, the concept of, like, you know, we're hardened by love. But he also said that people have asked me what the cover refers to, and I think art should be open to interpretation. And I'm like, so, nigga, you don't know what this means. <laughs> is what you're saying. He doesn't need to know what it means. He's not a speaker. He's a singer, Ira. (laughs) Well, he sat down for a talk, so he should have had something to say about it. Oh, my God. At any rate, the album itself is very good. Um, There's some, like, classic slow jams. Um, There's some classic bangers. I really like the song Bump. I really like the song Rivals with Future. And the video is dope, too. Right. I mean, the song is kind of ironic um, because Future is singing like, I don't want no rivals. I put that on the Bible. Um, And he's like the ex to Sierra's Sever, if we're talking about ballistic ex versus Sever. So he has a rival. um, And he revels in this rivalry. He just released a diss song about her this week. It just, the irony of Future working with Usher, who Usher can attest to how hot Sierra was like a decade ago, literally. Right. It's just like, oh, come on, Future. Like, you can't act, you can't act like you made Sierra. Are you kidding me? Missy Elliott, like Jazzy Faye, that whole, that Atlanta moment actually made space for what Future's doing in rap. Yeah. So she kind of made you in a way. But Usher has long been like an icon. There was a recent piece in BuzzFeed, um, wasn't there? Yeah, so that piece was written by the amazing Hannah Georges, and it's about specifically 8701, which came out 15 years ago uh, last month. That album slaps. And that is like that the iconic Usher album, I would say, yeah. So good. It is. It is just like Pharrell's production at its finest you know every neptune's track on that album is perfect it's flawless i mean it's not confessions but it is usher at this peak of maturation Mm -hmm. usher he started as a pop star when he was 15 years old he was a baby 
and you know he was doing all this choreography he had everything down he was kind of like the analog to a lot of the young white pop stars we think of when we think of the 90s like your Justin or your Britney Mm -hmm. but with this album 8701 which is now you know 15 years old Usher he had matured like you said working with Pharrell working with the Neptunes there was something about the sexuality which a couple of years earlier felt a, a little like almost too precocious that had actually you know it had ripened to something that was like actually sexy um, when he released that record and then you know looking at what Confessions did with Jermaine Dupri it was like oh Usher can actually mine the range of emotions he's not just like a gorgeous black man who will give you like an eight count done perfectly he can actually be every kind of R&B singer yeah I saw the Confessions tour. Usher was so big then that like Kanye opened for him on that tour. So, wow. But I was there to see Usher. And then I was like, oh, Kanye's kind of good too, I guess. <laughs> Who's this Kanye kid? <laughs> Who is he? Jesus is walking. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah. Usher, he's also one of those music- musicians that I love because... Obviously, everybody knows who he is, but he holds a specific, special place in the like black music community. Mm-hmm. You know, like white people may not always be checking for him, but that's what makes him even more interesting to me. You know, like he crossed over at some points, but at other points, he really just stayed like for us. He didn't like do the Justin Timberlake thing, and I will always respect him for that. And I think as one of the trailblazers in terms of R&B, I think Usher is so underappreciated. And he is fine as hell. And now it's time for our feedback segment where we invite uh, listeners to call in for advice, Uh, Maybe they don't even know who the hell Kate Upton is and they want to ask us about her. (laughs) Uh, You can do that at 424-354-9335. So jumping into our first caller this week. I don't even know what the fuck I'm calling. (laughs) Bye. That's it? Um, to answer your question, it is going well. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you call a number that you don't know what it is? We literally got like prank dialed. Is that what just happened? Yeah. Who well, was jokes that? Jokes on you because now you're on the air. <laughs> and you sound silly. <laughs> Ooh, moving on. Hi, Doreen and Ira. This is Kyle Turner. Big, big fan of your podcast and your work in, at MTV in general. I really loved Ira's piece on that ridiculous Gabriel Roth, Merriam Webster thing on Delete Your Account. And maybe you could talk about that. And sometimes when white people um, get very uh, offended at really dumb things and go on think peace rants for no particular reason. Anyways, I uh, love the work and uh, keep. Being great and hope all of you are well. Um, have a great day. Bye. Thank oh. you, Kyle. Kyle, that Kyle was so was sweet. So sweet. Yeah, Kyle, I love you. 
Me too. I mean, speaking of white people and think piece rants, we already talked about that girl from <laughs> Refinery29, who we've since discovered has a Twitter bio that says, I'm the light-skinned Keith Sweat. Breaking so, news. <laughs> so there's a whole host of other problems going on there. But to quickly address <laughs> this Gabriel Roth thing, because this is someone else who came for Doreen on the internet. Uh, Gabriel is Roth is a guy who tweeted something about how Miriam Webster's Twitter was just sort of like whack and trying to be like the quote-unquote cool dad on the internet or whatever. And Miriam Webster, whoever runs that social media, responded to him, no one cares about your feelings. And that tweet went viral, and it was really (laughs) funny. And Gabriel felt some sort of way, so he hopped over to Slate, where he works, and he wrote a think piece about how awful it was to be attacked on the internet by a dictionary. I mean, the irony of this sort of defensiveness happening around the time that women of color online are talking about the harassment that they get from white supremacist and sexist trolls. Um, But it's just, I think, there is a parable in the Bible, um, and it's in the book of Proverbs, and it's uh, very short. It is, take the L. That is from the book of Proverbs. (laughs) I'm literally reading it. My Bible is open right now. Sometimes you just have to take the L. If a dictionary tweets that at you, you have to survey the situation and you have to be able to tell, there's no way I'm going to be able to salvage my position here. What I tweeted wasn't really relevant. They're a dictionary. Their job is literally to talk about language. And you just move on. And I think when you don't, When you get emotional for things that don't warrant that kind of response, you just end up in this cycle, you know, and you're just like adding the account and the account's not going to respond. And then you're writing a think piece and they're obviously not going to respond to you. It's just you're just shouting into an echo chamber. And so just don't do it. Don't get mad on the Internet. Hi, Doreen. Please don't go start a Twitter fight with Refinery29. You, I, I'm starting it right now. God damn late. it. <laughs> <laughs> if you would love for us to give you feedback, just like we did Kyle, uh, you can call us at 424 424- Three five four nine three three five. Once again, that number is four two four three five four nine three three five, and leave us a message. This episode of Speed Dial was produced by Kasia Mihailovic, Michael Catano, and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. Subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.